This is an Our Savior Evangelical Free Church podcast. To learn more, visit osefc.org. Let me just tell you how grateful I am to be back with you today here at Our Savior Evangelical Free Church. And, uh, and I, I'm grateful to see you back here today um, with, with such a, a challenging topic that we're talking about. So it is a good thing to see you back today. And I appreciate that we're all in this together. Uh, do pray that as the message of God goes forward, that we are able to receive it, hear it clearly, and that I'm able to uh, express it clearly. And so we look forward to just uh, hearing God, not just what he says today, but I hope that from these moments, he'll give you thoughts that would allow you to, to think about these things in the, in the future and how you might be able to apply yourselves to them. Now, uh, we're continuing and ending today the message from Acts chapter 10, where the apostle Peter has a divine appointment with a man named Cornelius, who was a non-Jewish person. That divine appointment served as a secondary conversion for Peter. Because up until that point, Peter was quite oblivious to his own egregious sin. But the Lord changed Peter to make him more like Jesus. And in Acts chapter 10, verse 34, because of that, Peter says these words. In truth, Peter says, I perceive that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, whoever fears him and works righteousness is accepted by him. The word which God sent to the children of Israel, preaching peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. Father, I pray that the word of God would go forward, and I thank you and, uh, for Pastor Adam's uh, invite today. Uh, I also uh, uh, align with him asking you to speak with my mouth, Lord, think with my mind, uh, align our spirits, and that our spirits together would be aligned with yours, Father God, and that the Holy Spirit would have clear way in expressing Jesus's love uh, toward us in this place today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Church, Dwight Moody was outraged, Edward Bloom says. He was outraged when, in 1895, at one of his revival meetings, he saw the physical barriers separating blacks and whites. Like Samson, one of his biblical heroes, Moody thrust his 270-pound frame against the wooden railings. Although exerting all his force, he could not pull them down. Although he did not offer a reason for his actions, his message was loud and clear. The next day, the dividing structure was removed. Now, this may not mean much to you today, but I imagine it meant a great deal to the black Americans of that day. You see, for the last 20 years, Moody had held segregated revival meetings. Sometimes black Christian voices, at least according to my reading, couldn't enter the revivals at all. In fact, the leading black Christian voices of the day spoke ill of Dwight L. Moody, some of the leading voices. Frederick Douglass, abolitionist, he said he had already called out the church in general saying this. He said, I therefore hate the corrupt, slave-holding, women-whipping, cradle-plundering, partial, and hypocritical Christianity of the land. I look upon it as the climax of all misnomers, 
the boldest of all frauds and the grossest of all libels. Never was there a clearer case of stealing the library of the court of heaven to serve the devil in. That's what Frederick Douglass said. He continued, I am filled with unutterable loathing when I cont contemplate the religious pomp and show together with the horrible inconsistencies which everywhere surround me. We have men stealers for ministers, women whippers for missionaries, and cradle plunderers for church members. The man who wields the blood clotted cow skin during the week fill, full, fills the pulpit on Sunday and claims to be a minister of the meek and lowly Jesus. But that's not all Douglas had to say of the white American Christianity. Douglas invoked the name of D.L. Moody specifically. To be clear now, Moody was an abolitionist on the one hand, but a Southern sympathizer on the other. Douglas compared Dwight Moody to the agnostic lecturer, Robert Ingersoll. Douglas said this. He said, infidel, though Mr. Ingersoll may be called, he never turned his back upon his colored brothers, as did the evangelical Christians of Philadelphia on the occasion of the late visit of Mr. Moody. Of all the forms of Negro hate in this world, save me from that which clothes itself with the name of the loving Jesus. And Douglas wasn't the only one who spoke about Moody. Ida B. Wells said, Moody encouraged the drawing of the color line in the churches, calling his segregated revivals despicable events. And one representative of the AME church, the African Methodist Episcopal Church, the, the, the first black denomination in the United States. By the way, parenthetically, let me say, the AME church, one, one, one scholar said, if there were no racism, there would be no racial churches. He says so because he recognized that the AME church and many other denominations, in particular our black denominations in this country, started because though they had opportunity, though they were with whites at first, they never found an equal footing in the, those places. And they decided that that's not the Jesus who they're supposed to be serving. That's not the Jesus who the white persons are supposed to be serving. And so they began to start their own denominations. That's how black denominations, for the most part, were started in the country. And one of these gentlemen from the African Methodist Episcopal Church, he said of Moody, he said, I wouldn't have him preach in a bar room, let alone a church. It was said that Moody Church placed caste above Christianity. As one writer said, Moody prioritized national unity and racial hierarchy over Christian doctrine, perverting the good news he claimed to preach. Now, uh, today we have in Daytona, Florida, the, the, the school known as Bethune-Cookman College. And, and it, was, it was started by Mary McLeod Bethune, who was an educator. But Mc, Mary McLeod Bethune was not first an educator. Her desire was to be a missionary. And what school did she go to to become the missionary she wanted to become? She went to Moody Bible Institute, a different name at the time. And Dwight Moody and others told her she could not go, not because she wasn't qualified, as qualified as the males who were there, but specifically because of the color of her skin. So she wrote a letter. We don't have the letter that they wrote to her, but we have a letter that she wrote back to them 
where she says, I don't recall Christ. She said, first of all, if I had known Moody, this institution was not allowing colored folk to go to the mission field, I would not have come here. She says, I don't recall Christ calling any particular color to go. Yes, friends, whether speaking individually, institutionally, systemically, or socially, the church and evangelicals in particular have been nastily complicit through overt racism or cruelly silent in more covert inactivity or indifferent altogether. Now, friends, it's not my desire to call up the sins of dead men. And I could, I could have chosen nearly any era within the last several hundred years, church, to make good on my claim that the white American church's historical Christian racism has been rampant. But the white Moody church is the epitome of the white Protestant Christianity of the last few hundred years. Why? Because we find out that, that Moody was supposedly euphorically captivated by the salvific power of the gospel, as many of us are today. But he had no regard for racial unity. He sided with abolitionists against slavery, but he maintained either his sense or his seat of superiority. Moody is like Abraham Lincoln in some ways. This, that is, Lincoln, while Lincoln's actions to sign the Emancipation Proclamation allowed for African Americans to go free, we're forced to acknowledge that Abraham Lincoln was still a white supremacist and a racist. We're forced to acknowledge that. In Lincoln's own words, he says this. <clears throat> he says, I will say then, in his fourth speech to Steve, with Stephen A. Douglas, fourth debate, I will say then that I am not, nor ever have been, in favor of bringing about in any way the social and political equality of the white and black races, that I am not, nor ever have been, in favor of making voters or jurors of Negroes nor of qualifying them to hold office, nor to intermarry with white people. And I will say in addition to this, that there is a physical difference between white and black races, which I believe will forever forbid the races, the two races, living together on terms of social and political inequality. And inasmuch as they so cannot live, Lincoln said, while they do remain together, there must be the position of superior and inferior. And I, as much as any other man, am in favor of having the superior position assigned to the white race. That's what Abraham Lincoln said. Church Moody and Lincoln serves as proxy for white Protestant Christianity and white Americans, liberal or conservative, oftentimes in identifying racist overtones of American life and American Christianity. Like a host of others, Moody had prized unity among whites over human and Christian brotherhood. And this is what we find happening with Peter. By the time Peter had met Cornelius in Acts chapter 10, hey, he had truly trusted in Jesus and he bore some spectacular spirit-filled fruit. I mean, Peter walked on water. I've not done that. I don't think I'm ever going to be able to do that. Honk your horn if you can say amen about that. Speaking with tongues, Peter, Peter spoke with tongues in unknown, uh, that were unknown to him, uh, ushering in the Holy Spirit. Peter healed sick people. Peter healed the lame person. He healed his mother. He healed uh, other, uh, um, a few other people. 
Uh, and, and then he even raised the dead. Yet we find after all this had taken place in Peter's life, he still held on to his racism. <clears throat> and it was so great a sin in Peter's life that God called Peter to change his ways by embracing non-Jewish people in Acts chapter 10, verse 14. And we find Peter rebuking God himself, telling God, no, Lord, I'm too holy for that. My reputation is too pristine for that. And the major truth that Peter's life demonstrated that we heard last week is that even spiritually mature Christians can have egregious sin in their daily lives with God. Church, let me bring us then into clear focus on the message today. There's a great concern that a great many of our beloved white Christian brothers have fallen headlong into what seems to be the black hole of American whiteness and love for country above the love for people and other humans, much like Lincoln and Moody. To be sure, George Floyd, had he not died, it's highly unlikely that I'd be standing here to preaching you to, to you today. I didn't go to school to talk about race. I had to learn that along the way because the church was still just as racist as the world. I went to school to learn the same things that any other seminarian went to school for. And I earned a master's in divinity. And most of us as African-Americans and Hispanics quite often have to find ourselves doing this talk. Now, it's not wrong to do this talk, but it's a problem because we understand that quite often that's the moment that we're seen as valuable. And I need to let you know the gospel of Christ has equipped us for much more than that. I just want to make sure we're understood uh, in that. The nation is still reeling from the slow, tragic, and cruel murder of George Floyd. Eight minutes and 46 seconds added to the abysmal chasm filled with the minutes and seconds of harassed and lost black lives at the hands of authoritarian American systems, systems that employ, mobilize, and mobilize ill-equipped or ill-hearted police officers or bolster actions of authoritarian citizens who either know or don't know that they strengthen the centuries-long vice grip of European and white supremacy and the torrid affair of anti-blackness. The protest church are still raising, raging. We focus on George Floyd, but what shall we say of the minutes and seconds of Ahmaud Arbery, Breonna Taylor, and the innumerable number of black people killed by police or white American citizens, never mind the long list of known lynching victims in this nation. And we're not being killed, being inequitably imprisoned for crimes, and whether criminals or not, being unjustly profiled and harassed while black, whether in the park or on your job or at your residence, or driving 65 in a 70. Black and brown Americans are assumed to be suspicious, violent, less intelligent, unequal, or criminal just because of the color of their skin, even in the year 2020. And what's sometimes worse to African Americans is the subsequent emotional damage done to us when the ones who have sworn to serve and protect us serve to vindicate our tormentors. And this vindication is done from the municipalities of anywhere in the United States to the mansion at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue in Washington, D.C., with the long line of names we might call, stories we might tell, experiences we might encounter, or abuses we might suffer, we can say that despite many of the racial improvements in the law, Dr. King's similar words still ring true today. The nation is sick. 
And sadly, the American church is as sick as the nation, even though we hold the cure. Well before the coronavirus pandemic, not the China virus any more than you'd call the smallpox or the flu or the bubonic plague or something like that, the European virus or white virus, you wouldn't do that. So it's not the China virus, it's the coronavirus. Those are racist code words for China. And we need not, as believers, we need not to follow along those persons who are saying them. And so church, we can do better. We can't expect people who don't know the Lord to do better, but we have a, book, a blueprint. We have the living Lord Jesus. We have the Apostle Paul and the multi-ethnic churches that he started. We have that. And so we cannot follow along with whatever people might say, whether it's, whether it's in your communities or it's the government itself, we stand to speak better of people. That's the church of Jesus Christ. The question is, if we have the cure, how, how do we get well? And, and, and here's the question, what changed Moody that made him want to tear down that partition? Church, something happened in Dwight Moody well after he had come to faith in Jesus Christ and well after he had done great exploits for living the, the living Lord Jesus. So the reason I speak of Dwight Moody is not just to repeat the claim that spiritually mature Christians have egregious sin, but also to extend the claim that it's never too late for God to change us. And I have a, a hope for the church in general. I have a hope for white evangelicals. By the way, that hope is not, is not, is not total. It's not in total. Everybody doesn't have that hope for you. And you need to understand that there are people in the body of Christ who struggle with whether many white Christians are really Christians at all because they don't speak about racial issues in ways that actually help and they're always justifying, it seems, for many, the actions that seem to take place against the people, especially your brothers and sisters who experience much of the same. And I'm saying to you, brothers and sisters, we can speak differently. You can change the narrative about that, and I hope you will. Peter demonstrates that no matter where we are in our blindness, God wants to remove us from that present darkness and sanctify us to overcoming that sin. But in order to allow God to sanctify us, there are a few practices we need to pick up on as individuals or systemically we could begin scratching the itches across the body of Christ in regards to racial repair. First, if we're going to be changed by God to overcome the sin, then don't stop praying. Verse 9 in Acts chapter 10, the next day as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. Listen, friends, it's important that we don't stop spending time with God praying. For soon enough, God will do what is necessary to bring you into a new place of victory. The only reason we see Peter having the opportunity to be changed is because he, because he gave God the opportunity to work through prayer. He wasn't looking for the change he received, but because he was praying, he received change. And I understand that your, your primary uh, everyday waking moment is not thinking about racial issues, but I hope that you'll put yourself in a position of prayer so that I know if you're talking to God, at some point, God is going to change you. God is going to lead you. He's going to guide you. He's going to give you the, he's going to give you the opportunity so that you know how to act in these moments of racial, this racial, these racialized moments 
these racialized climates. And, and so don't stop praying. How does that happen, by the way? Well, one way we recognize that it happens is found in Romans chapter 8, verses 26 through 28. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weaknesses, for we do not know what we pray for, what we should pray for as we are, but the Spirit himself, the Spirit himself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. Now, he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is because the Spirit makes intercession for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. Why does all things work together for the good to those who love God? Because the Spirit of God is praying, is interceding for us. By the way, we could go to Hebrews chapter 7 and verse 25 and recognize that the Son of God, as he sits on the right hand of God, is also interceding to the Father. Listen, church, the reason you will be changed by God is because even while you don't fully know how you ought to be praying, when you pray with openness, the Holy Spirit is speaking to the Father on your behalf. My friend, don't stop praying. And even if you aren't looking for that change, I trust that God will change you to be more like him because that's what sanctification is. In, in fact, I, as I admonish you to pray, let me answer one of the, uh, the most asked questions I hear many uh, Christians ask minorities in times like these. The question is, what should we do? The very practical answer is pray. If you can't do anything else, you can pray because you're a child of God. You can pray because God will hear your prayers. You don't have to make big words, but God will hear you because you are his child. You can pray. When something happens racially, it shouldn't matter that you don't have black people in your church. shouldn't matter that you don't have many black friends, although I hope both of those things change. Take 10, 15, 10 minutes, five minutes, two minutes in your service to pray. Don't let the clock of the church or the children's ministry or dinner after service or lunch after service keep you for praying. Jesus said, my house shall be called a house of prayer, not a house of getting the children's workers out on time. So that we, we respect the workers of the church, but, but we've got to take time to pray about this. And when you don't know what else to do in this racialized climate, your church can pray. You can pray in your households and ask the Lord, God, what do we do? Ask the Lord, God, how can we see this change? God, would you speak into this and change it? You can pray. As the saying goes, you can do more than pray after you prayed, but you cannot do anything until you prayed. Peter prayed in verse 9, and it opened the door to God changing him in his life. If you don't know what to do about racial matters in our country, stop. Ask the Lord. Take time to pray. Second, if we're going to be changed by God to overcoming racial sin, overcoming the sin of racism, we must, according to uh, verses 10 and 16, Peter did this, confront old beliefs, confront old ways of thinking. Acts chapter 10, verse 10, and he became hungry. He wanted something to eat, but while they were preparing for it, he fell into a trance. <clears throat> and while in that trance, three times, verses 11 through 16, God instructed Peter to eat these animals. And even though he was hungry, Peter refused. Not only that, when he finally met Cornelius, he also told them, hey, you know we're not supposed to get together. And what we find 
is that that was not any written law, but an unwritten one provided by Jewish tradition. It's what we call, we might today call a taboo. A taboo, a proscription, something unwritten but forbidden. Branch Rickey, for example, the owner of the Dodgers, had a decision to make. He was the owner of a, an all-white baseball team in an all-white league. He decided that if his team were to be all that it ought to be, he was going to break a taboo. He was going to invite black basketball, uh, baseball players, excuse me. Jackie Robinson was the first, and he invited him to play for them. His advisors warned him, if you break an, a written rule, some might call you smart. But if you break an unwritten rule, a taboo, you'll be an outcast. Branch Rickey ignored the taboo, and as they say, the rest is history. How many times do we find shame in taboos or cultural laws rather than God's actual desired law? How many of you have, have believed the myth, for example, of interracial marriage or inferior intellectualism or, or heightened criminality in the, in the people who are non-white? How often have we missed out on the freedom, enjoyment, or reward of what could be because of an ungodly tradition that tells us what must be? And Peter had to break this unwritten rule if he was going to partner with God in sanctification. I'm, I'm, I'm just saying we got to do this. I'm, I'm recalling a student, leader of mine, on the campus of the University of Arkansas Pine Bluff. His, his reputation was impeccable, church. He was my leader of leaders. And, and he saw a young woman standing near the light pole around dusk. It was getting dark. He clearly felt the Holy Spirit clearly say to her, go over and share the gospel with her. However, he, he told me later, he reasoned, he said, I'm not going over there because it's beginning to get dark. And if I go talk to her as she's standing under that light pole in the dark, people will assume that I'm doing something shady and I'll wreck my Christian reputation. Now, I have to tell you, I, told, I asked him the question. I said, well, now, you're sure that the Holy Spirit was the one who told you that you should go and talk to this young lady and share the gospel with her? And he says, yeah, I'm pretty sure. But I felt like, you know, don't let your good be evil spoken of. I didn't want that to be the case. He, you know, he quoted a, a scripture uh, in order to justify his not doing what the Holy Spirit moved him to do. Now, church, I'm here to tell you, I, I shared with him. I said, you know, no, no, uh, don't do that again. Don't do that. Don't for your reputation not hear the spirit of God. Don't for your old traditions not hear the spirit of God. And I would tell you the same thing. And especially when we look at matters of race, we recognize that much of our separation, much of the fact that we stay segregated has to do with the old traditions, the old myths that God did not give us, but that we came up with ourselves. And if the church will be all that it must be, it'll mean confronting old beliefs, traditions, myths about unwritten prohibitions about race and ethnicity. Allow me to share one myth that the church is needed to, will need to confront. One myth the church must confront, first of all, is that there are indeed many races. There is not many races. People ask the question, does the Bible talk about race and racism? The answer is yes, the Bible absolutely talks about race. Race is a godly construct. I didn't say a theological construct. I said a godly construct. Our theology is open, open to interpretation. But God has his own interpretation. And he made each one of us in his image. That's the construct. That's when race was created. One race. As Christians, then, we reject the work of Carol, Carolus Linnaeus that told us 
500 or so years ago that there were four different races. And we reject the work of Johann Friedrich Blumenbach 50 years later that told us that there were five different races. Blumenbach, for example, adding the phrase Caucasian to replace the phrase that Linnaeus used, Europaeus. But Blumenbach only added the phrase because he found one skull. Blumenbach added the phrase because he found one skull in the Caucasus Mountains in Georgia, not Georgia, the United States, the Georgia, the, the country. And because he thought the skull was beautiful, he assumed that it must be European. And people have been calling themselves Caucasian ever since. You are not Caucasian. You are not Caucasian. That's a misnomer. Unless your ancestors are from the Georgian mountains, you're not Caucasian. And today, no credible anthropologist would look at their work and affirm it. Rather, we believe, as given to us in Genesis, that all of us are from one man, Adam. We declare with divine authority what the Apostle Paul affirmed for us in Acts chapter 17. That God, who made the world and everything in it, has made all nations from one blood, every nation, to live on the face of the earth. We reject the myth of many races and embrace the reality of one humanity. Therefore, we reject the notion of phrases like black blood, the rule of hypodescent, also known as the one drop rule. It says if you have one drop of black blood, then you're African-American or whatever other American you are. We reject that rule. That's not God's rule. That was a rule given to us by some men who met other men and called themselves superior. We reject it as believers in Jesus Christ. Amen. Can I get an amen? We reject it. And we, we hold fast. As the song says, Jesus holds fast to us. We hold fast to him. We hold fast to his word. Now let me, let me allow, uh, allow me to share with you a taboo based on that myth. The church then must also confront the fear, the false fear of interracial quote unquote mixing. Why? Because just as we said, there's only one race. There's no such thing as interracial mixing because there's only one human race. There, there are different hues, there are different colors, but there's one human race. I'll move on. Further, there's no one on the face of the earth, by the way, who has pure blood. And, and, if we, and if we're really concerned about pure blood, then I don't think you can be a follower of Jesus Christ. Because if you look at his history, he had people from many different walks of life. And here Jesus is. He's our savior. His blood, his blood matters. His blood is what saves us. And so if you don't like anything but pure blood, then you should not be a follower of Jesus Christ. But if you like the blood that covers all sin, if you like the blood that, that is mixed because it covers every person on the face of the earth, then you're in good company with the living Lord Jesus. Third, don't discount the role of God and the Holy Spirit. Several times in the passage, it tells us uh, in verses 34 and 35, we can specifically see it, that the Holy Spirit was working in some form or the other. In fact, God started Peter's process of being sanctified and set apart to reach other cultures even before God, even before uh, he knew God was working. The Holy Spirit was already working by sending the angel to Cornelius and meeting Peter on that roof through the trance. My friends, the wonderful thing about God is that when we, that we partner with him in our holiness, but even if we don't, 
God is going to sanctify his people. The scriptures say that he who began a good work in you is faithful to complete it until Jesus Christ returns. The question is, will we work with God or against God in his quest to cause us to become like Christ? It may not even be prejudice. That may not be your sin. Whatever your sin is, God wants to sanctify you like he did with Peter so that when it's all said and done, you will be more like Christ and you can tell the story of the cross that as Peter did in verses 34 through 43, we must pray to confront old beliefs with God's present word and know that God is working on our behalf to get us holiness. Let me say, I'm, I'm, I'm just grateful to be back here. And I promise you, if we pray, if we confront our old beliefs, and if we listen to the Holy Spirit, there's no way that the church should continue on being a party, a partner to the racial structures in this country or for that matter, across the globe. If we pray, if we confront our old beliefs, and if we listen to the Holy Spirit, there's no way that we would remain at the most segregated hour uh, of, of, the, of, the, of, the, of the week. This should not be happening. But perhaps we're not praying. Perhaps we're not confronting old beliefs. And perhaps we aren't really listening to the Holy Spirit. I'm praying that you'll do it today, my friend. I'm praying that I'll do it today because if we do it, the Bible tells us that I don't, the Bible says if we are one, the world will know that Jesus Christ is Lord. The world will believe that Jesus Christ is Lord. The world will understand that they are loved by the Father the same way that Jesus Christ is Lord. It's very practical. Pray, educate yourself, confront those old beliefs, and then listen to the Holy Spirit. Those are very practical things. If you want to ask me other things, you feel free to do so in the questions. Let us pray. Father, thank you for your word that tells us that we are made, all of us, in your image according to one blood and that all of us have had the opportunity and have been saved by the blood of Jesus Christ as we trust in him with faith. And I pray, Father, that you will break the stronghold of racism and racialization in, in the American society, but especially in the church of Jesus Christ. Let your name, Father, be lifted up. Let the glory that you gave the church for the purpose of being one be exercised in such ways that men and women across the globe would recognize that the living Lord Jesus changes people and that people of all races or what we call races people of all hues people of all ethnicities people of all of those things would recognize that jesus christ is lord to the glory of god the father let it not just be when we get to heaven but let it be right here on earth in the name of jesus i pray for my dear friends right now that the spirit of god would empower each one of us as we've heard your words, and that we would live accordingly. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. 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 I see some of you doing it. Can we express our appreciation for the preaching of the word through Hans? Yeah. Amen. Brother, again, wonderful. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, I am encouraged. I am challenged. I, I have met, had many thoughts provoked. Um, but I don't want to spend a lot of time just telling you how I'm reacting because we have so many good questions. Um, so let's let's just, I, I think we can do um, the ones that I've gotten because there's so many good ones, but I'm going to dive right in. This is, I think this is an, an excellent question, but we pull no punches very early. So here's, here's a first question. 
How do you stay encouraged when having hard conversations about race and politics? Most of them seem to bear very little fruit. And then the kind of the follow-up question would be, do you have any hope for a nation that was essentially built on the back of racial inequality? Yeah, um, man. Well, I have to tell you, I think I think I recognized some years ago after being in these discussions for so long uh, and, and, and with, with Christians, you know, with Christians more so. Because, you know, we can't really expect that non-Christians would be, um, I mean, we, we want it to be that non-Christians would be non-racist and non-sinful, but we expect it in the church that, that Christians would be, you know, holy and, and non-sinful and, and think along the lines for humanity. And I recognize uh, some years ago, I probably was getting a little jaded, uh, especially uh, when I dealt with my white Christian brothers who had no, clearly just no understanding, no, no empathy, no empathy for the, the recognition of what was going on in communities uh, like mine or to people like mine or children like mine who, who have had, had to experience certain things. And, uh, and I began to get jaded. I am, my, my faith does stay in the fact of what I read to you, that, that Jesus Christ is going to do his work. Uh, he will bring us to a point where we are going to be what he wants us to be. I even had to come to the conclusion there may be some racists in heaven. I, I, I had to come to the conclusion because I recognize that when Jesus comes back, there will probably be a ton of Christians who hadn't yet overcome some of their, their problems. But they will have genuinely believed in the gospel and trusted Jesus Christ with their life. And they'll have to trust in the righteousness of God for their sin like I have to trust in him for mine the things that I might not have fixed. So I do trust in the blood of Jesus Christ that it does indeed cleanse. I do trust now on, on the earth though, I do trust that I'm listening. The other thing that gets me encouraged is I'm listening to people and there are there is a change that's taking place. Uh, and you could see it, the, the world is leading us in that change. By the way, when I saw Laquan McDonald uh, shot down, I noticed the riots, the uh, excuse me, the protests rather, weren't just African-Americans. There were whites and Hispanics. They're marching there too, um, and and so it was a, it was a it was a helpful thing. And of course, we see the same thing with George Floyd. Not to belabor the point, I want to I want to go on, but but that's one of the ways I see it. I actually do see people right now seemingly saying, "Hey, I think we're starting to understand." Yeah, I want to I, I want to follow up because somebody had a similar question, um, and you, you addressed it a little bit, but I think you know maybe time for a a, a bit more. They asked, when somebody like Moody from your sermon, who, you, who uses an example, who preached the gospel but failed to do his, you know, his early part, would he not be saved because uh, of his racism and his failure to do justice to the least of these? And then, and then the follow-up question would, would be, would we risk being cast away from Christ if we similarly fail to do enough to address racial injustice? I believe that uh, when a person trusts Jesus Christ, the process, this is what Peter's experiencing here, the process of sanctification ensures that he or she will indeed be justified. That is, they will stand before the presence of the Lord Jesus. But today, their present life does speak to whether or not they actually trust in Jesus or they actually trust in the systems of this world. So we, I'm, I'm, I take people at their word. I, if you tell me you're a Christian, you're a Christian. I look at the white Moody and the and the and, and I believe the white Moody trusts in the Lord Jesus. Mm -hmm. So I trust that the Lord Jesus will get the white Moody to heaven. But I also expect that the white Moody will let the Lord Jesus and and many of us uh, as well to sanctify him to become better walkers of the faith. 
on this earth. And, and that walk ought to look different, not just to us, but to the, the person next to me. And I'm saying to you right now, from, from the vantage point, many African-Americans, Hispanics, look at the white Christian church and feel like that they're, not, they're not walking in accordance with uh, uh, any kind of thought process toward what happens to people who aren't like them. Now, I know that's not true. It's an overstatement. It's a, generaliz a generalization. But, but you recognize that those people aren't protesting in the streets for nothing. You recognize that the black evangelicals aren't leaving white evangelical churches for nothing. That's happening. And so you want to recognize that there's that reality that if I'm a believer, I'm learning then to live in such a way that my brother experiences Christ through me. And that's what that's what the challenge is today. I don't know if I've answered the question. I th I absolutely, yeah. brother. Yeah. Um, somebody asked, I thought this was a good question. This is just you personally. What has been the hardest for you to see through the events of the past, you know, few m months and in, 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 in everything? What, what has been the hardest for you personally to to witness? Yeah. You know, uh, as I've shared with you, I've been jaded some. But, you know, I also recognize uh, my children uh, do do have to I have to concern myself with whether or not they're or not. Uh, that's probably been the hardest thing for me. Uh, I, I remember walking out one day in front of my own house. It was about two in the morning. My son was coming home and, and here he is. The police, I, 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 I don't know, something prompted me to look out my window and I just happened to look out the window and I see my car there. And, and it just so happens the police had just stopped my car, just so happened in front of my house. It's dark in the street, two o'clock in the morning. I walk out and I just asked the officer, the first officer, hey, what happened here? Now, by the way, think about this, dark in the street, black man walking two o'clock in the morning up on two police officers, uh, and, and my son is sitting on the corner there, and they're searching my car. And I'm wondering why are they searching my car? I walk up and I get one answer from one officer and another answer from another officer. They didn't seem to line up. And, and I'm saying to you, you know, and my son doesn't, wouldn't know enough to say, don't search my car. In fact, we would tell him probably go ahead and tell him anyway to search the car uh, for safety. We don't, I, I don't ascribe to the, the reality that all police officers are good police officers. That's not a reality. I believe all police officers are sinful like I am. And that on a bad day, perhaps a police officer, even a good one, can harm my son. And that was the potential for that. And so the hardest thing for me, I think, is, is, to, is to wrestle with the idea, two things, um, uh, is the idea that, that even on a, 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 a good day, my son, on his best day, my sons and daughter could be perceived as threats. But the other thing is, is, is not hearing the empathy from my white Christian brothers. That's, that's challenging to me. And, and I'm, I'm grateful. Let me tell you how, how, how in some ways uh, I've seen that work for me, right? Uh, seen that work in a good way. Uh, I feel like we're going to fly yeah. off, right? I think we're all right. We got, we got yeah. sandbags. So we're going to be But right. I do remember when I was, I was a, uh, an elder at North Sub and I, and I taught there uh, one day and I preached. This was shortly after the Trayvon Martin incident. And I remember uh, after preaching at this, that, uh, preaching the sermon, immediately, the, I think the, the, the congregation thought, this is what I felt like, the congregation thought, oh, it's not just that black persons somewhere are being stopped. It's Pastor Steve's children, which are our children, also are, are in danger. And immediately after the service, I've never seen it before at North Sub, and I hadn't seen it since. After the service, people popped up and they began to just pray. Pray for the issue. Pray for, pray for our families. Pray for our children. 
prayed for, for just racial issues in general, which was in many ways how we started uh, Race, Space, and Grace, which was a a, 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 a seminar where we did for several weeks. Part of it, I did the truncated version here at this congregation years ago. And that was a hopeful thing. But it's a strange thing to me when I hear believers in Jesus Christ not even empathize or make excuses and vindicate people who tend not to think so well of African-Americans. It's, yeah. it's a strange thing. Well, thank, I, I mean, I appreciate you. That's a vulnerable story to, to talk about your experience. And even I'm, I'm sure you, you don't relish remembering that in in your mind right now to that's a scary scary thing so thank you for sharing that boldly and, and courageously with us i i appreciate that um i want to ask you uh this was a good this is a good question so you mentioned being a campus pastor in arkansas yeah uh, at a predominantly black school with a minority of white students but there were white students who were part of the ministry how did you value those white students in that predominantly homogenous Space. Sure. Yeah, you know, and, and this was a challenge because being on a predominantly black campus, uh, you recognize that the balance of power does indeed lie with African-Americans in some sense, but the social balance of power uh, for white Americans is still at play wherever you go. We have students uh, who are uh, attending the university as well and, and were part of our ministry and by God's grace felt like they could come to our ministry and, 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 and found a community there. Uh, so what we did was, in, in order to, to seek to, to not um, necessarily jam one culture down the throat of one and, and, not, and not allow our African-American students only to focus on uh, what it meant to serve people like them and to be with people like them, we brought in some of the people who, um, who wanted to serve with our, our ministry, white, white persons, different churches. My, the denomination I was working with was predominantly white. Um, and, and the churches we had to work with uh, were predominantly white, but my students were predominantly black and were not part of my denomination. And so we, we, built a, we had a great ministry by God's grace, uh, just, just seeing Jesus Christ uplifted. Um, and, 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 and some of the, the persons who wanted to help were white. We, we connected them in the, in the area of music in this particular instance. And, uh, and we actually um, asked one of our guys, a white guy, to come lead. But he, around him, he had African-Americans and they were playing. Our students listened to songs that he knew nothing about. And, and, and so he learned on his acoustic guitar because African-Americans are mostly on the keyboard, piano, uh, a great deal. Although you see more of them on the acoustic now. Um, and, and he learned how to play some of the things that we would normally have heard. And, 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 and our students learned different music that they would not have heard. We became one culture again. Like, it, it, it takes some movement to do that. It takes some, takes some heavy lifting to do that uh, in, in your heart. But if you can stay with it, then you'll become the culture you need to be for Jesus Christ. And by God's grace, not because I was such a great stra strategist or anything like that, but we opened the door uh, where God, by God's grace, moved in that ministry. And we did see unity across those lines. Praise the Lord. Well, it shows us it's possible. I should have asked this one. This is a really good question. I should have asked it when, when you told that story about your son from recently. Uh, but somebody asked this good question. When our children experience racism, do you have any words of comfort or encouragement for them? I mean, maybe you could just share, if you would boldly share, how do you speak to your children about racism? How have you? You know, I have to tell you, the most, the most thing I try and say to him is, is to be aware of, of racism. Um, I, 
I don't I don't know that I, I, I talk as much about and, and this is a good a good question because it makes me think I should I probably should make sure that they understand that a lot of what race is built on and racialization is built on is not the truth and and who they I do try and make sure I say to my children daily how proud I am of them how how I, I um, how much I love them and how much that that they're how, you know try and point out their talents and and gifts in that moment um, in moments and, and I would say that children like adults need to understand we are we are made in God's image we are important um, and, and 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 we're not we don't have to be what people say we have to be now uh, that being said it's probably a more challenging thing for uh, for people who have less resources to believe that um, but man I have to tell you um, just because un other people diminish who you are doesn't mean you have to be that. I try and I, I don't I don't always put those two together with my children. I just try and make sure I tell my children how proud I am of them, how much I love them and how well um, how well I think of them and in their gifts and talents. Uh, that being said, I, I mean, maybe there is a better example. Um, I'm sure there are, there are black parents all across, white parents uh, or Hispanic parents all across who do have to talk to their children. I think that's a good question to make sure we're asking people. Excellent. I, I want to just, I'm going to close with, with two more. Um, and th this would, this would be, as pastors, you and I are, are used to talking with people who God has miraculously and, and providentially and graciously called out of sin into light. But sometimes we talk to people who have had hard, dark pasts. They, they've, they've sinned in, in fairly egregious ways. Uh, sometimes they've sinned in, in subtle ways that, that have built up over years. Sometimes they, they've done really awful things. If somebody, a, a brother or sister in Christ, recognized they had believed, they had done things that not only contributed to racialization but were racist, that mm -hmm. they, had, they had spoken to people, they had, had, had done things, but they genuinely were, were repentant and wanted to change. How would you encourage them to process their the the the, the, the holy and spiritual guilt that they that that, that, that they're feeling over processing back and, and recognizing what the uh, the harmful effects of what they've done? So if somebody, I guess to ask to ask this question just a little bit more succinctly, if somebody recognizes and wants to repent of racism, but they feel bad about that, how do you encourage them and how do you? preach the gospel to them in, 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 in the midst of that. Yeah, and, and, and man, you know, I, I feel like as believers, when the Holy Spirit convicts us, most of us, no, let's say it's not racism, let's just say it's, it's, it's sin in general, there comes this heavy weight that, oh my God, I, I did that. That's, yeah. that's what usually happens with Christians. I did that. And, and that's the question. Well, now what do I do? And this is the difference between, say, to, between, say a Judas and a Peter. Right. A Judas never went back to Jesus and he took it upon himself. He carried the weight uh, A Peter at some point found it within himself to make his way back to Jesus when they met on that beach in John chapter 21. Mm. Uh, but I do remember um, uh, 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 reading this passage one day and I, I, I would share that I share this with believers when you feel like you, you, you're, the weight of sin is heavy on you. Just remember, 1 John 3 and 20 says it, but, but that, that God understands your heart. He knows all things about you. And, and so, um, it, it says, brothers, if our hearts condemn us, you know, remember this. Remember that God is greater than our hearts. Mm -hmm. So it's, that's the hard, because the, sometimes I have sin I think back on. Even, I'm a, I'm a believer, I'm, 
I'm, I'm, I'm, I've been washed in the blood, forgiven of that sin, but the guilt of that sin and the weight of that sin sometimes might come revisit me. And I remember, but God knows me and I'm God's child. I've been forgiven. And it is important that faith plays a significant role in us, whether it's uh, race, racialization, racism, uh, or any other sin. It's important that we recognize that God's judgment about us, that he separates our sins as far as the east is from the west, is greater than my heart. And if my heart condemns me, that's one thing. But I believe my God over my heart. Now, I don't mean for you to uh, be uh, think that your actions might have been inconsequential or that you have no further work to possibly do. But don't let that work be out of a sense of guilt. Let it be out of a sense of, as Romans uh, chapter 12 talks about, renewing your mind so that you can prove what is the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. I would say you get to do that. Um, in, in, race, in racial ideals particularly, a person who feels that the, 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 the weight um, of, of racism is on them, hey, uh, see where God would have you now turn a, a corner and be a part of something that's now repairing. Re reparations is biblical. Isaiah chapter 58 points out that reparations is biblical. Uh, Deuteronomy tells us that reparations and restitution is biblical. So there are ways that you can do things and ask God to guide you. This is why we pray. Ask God to guide you. Ask him to put you in place and you make a point to be in place with people who could tell you how to help them, the, 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 the issue. The, the, and there are going to be many ways and the Holy Spirit is going to lead you to the right one. I just want, I want to say something really quick because you and I had a great conversation this week. You were packing boxes but gave me an hour to talk about these things. And, and um, you helped me to understand the idea of reparations so much through that lens of we, we typically hear that as reparations of uh, monetary reparations or something else. And that might be a part of it. But you listed so many other things. You, you know, you, you helped to expand my, my understanding of reparations to go beyond uh, to, to talk about repairing of things rather than just simply um, – uh, 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 trying to make the past right through a single action of monetary gift or something, something else. Sure. And I was, I, was, I was grateful for that. Maybe I'll sneak in a quick one. If you could just quickly answer. Um, could you just really quickly expand on, when you say reparations, what, what, what might you mean by that? Sure. You know, it, it, it's no secret that the nation has historically been racist and has oppressed African-Americans and, and if we expand it outside of racism and talk about ethnocentrism and has harmed not just African-Americans but the, the uh, but Asian-Americans and uh, the largest lynching, one of the largest mob lynchings was, was against Asian-Americans um, uh, uh, not, not just Asian-Americans but Hispanic-Americans and when you think about how uh, half the nation half the nation used to belong to Mexico we might want to consider um, that, that, that when we talk about restitution and reparations, those things are significant. Um, but the question is how? And, and, and that's the answer none of us really have. Uh, it's not all about money, although, although it seems to come down to dollars and cents. There are ways like uh, Georgetown University is, has decided they're going to give reparations. Uh, apparently, they're going to be giving scholarship to African-Americans. Wonderful thing, right? That's, that's repairing the, the loss of education that has uh, plagued this country. Uh, and you know, when you live in a community, wherever you live, if your community is all one set of people, that determines where you get to go to school quite often. 
And where you get to go to school, where you live determines where you get to go to school. Where you get to go to school determines how well sometimes you're educated and, 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 and the things in your community, the opportunities in your community that can build you up. Reparations can be as much as a person saying, we're going to start uh, improving, helping improve economic opportunities for, for under-resourced communities. That's reparations. And make sure that the, the resources that, 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 that should be going to those communities get there. Not because you think or not that they deserve it or that they worked hard enough, but because the, we can, we, uh, just historically speaking, if we just talked about history, the nation has done enough where reparations is deserved. I'll, I'll say this one last thing. We often th tend to think that people haven't worked hard enough uh, and that's why they are where they are. Um, first of all, I don't think that's a, a biblical way of thinking about this. Uh, I, I recall, I'm thinking about David, when David went and, and he, he retrieved his wife and, and, all of, and, and, and the wives of the men. Um, and, and, and some men had to stay behind at the brook because they were too tired. And, and when they got back, the 400 men who had gone forward said of the 200 men who stayed behind, uh, they can't share in all that we've done because we've done this work. David said to them, he says, we will not do this evil. He called that evil. He called that problematic. He says, but they, the 200 who stayed behind, will share in everything just as we have. We, we, and he called it evil. And he said the good thing was that we make sure we do share with that. I believe it's 1 first, first Samuel 30. And, and so we look at David, and he wasn't, he wasn't concerned about um, um, who did all the work. By the way, if we talk about who did the work to build this country, then I don't think you can escape the fact that African Americans have done the most work to build this country for free. For free. And, 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 and they've received lesser of the return. That's not my words. You can go check the studies on it. And I, and I just want you to know that we as the church have a different opportunity. We have an opportunity to do something different with this nation so that God can be pleased and so that, re, that we can repair the breach. We can be restorers of the streets to dwell in. We can do that. Praise the Lord. That's a good, it's a good place to end. I'm going to ask just, the, I, I'm going to close with a question that, that I asked last week. And one of the things that you, you and I were talking about, and, and I said, man, reparation seems like such a big, hard job. And uh, gentle, soft, gentle rebuke from you. And your answer was, yeah, but when, when have we ever not tried to do something just because it was hard? Yeah. You know, I mean, and, and that, that, that spoke to me because sometimes I, I don't do that in, in any other area of my life where I say, well, it's hard. I'm not going to do that. I say, yeah. well, it's hard. I'm going to roll up my sleeves and I'm going to get it done. Or at least I'm going to make my best effort at it. And so I, I, I appreciated that gentle rebuke from you. I, I needed it. Um, we've had probably half a dozen to a dozen people texting and just ask some version of the question that we, we closed with the same question last week, but I want to get a, a good list again. Just what are books, websites, ministries, groups, documentaries? Um, I think that's, those are the things that people asked where we can educate ourselves. What would you, if you just kind of listed some, some sure. of the resources that, you know, that people are, are looking at? Yeah. You know, I just thought about a book this morning that I'm, I'm, I'm I am reading through it, but uh, I'm, I'm reading through it slowly. It's called the color of law by Richard Rothstein. Now, the reason I didn't think about it before, because it's not a Christian book. It's a book that talked about 
how residential segregation took place in this country, and and, and essential essentially the partnerships between uh, between the municipal, uh, the local governments, the the state governments, uh, the the homeowners um, associations, and the federal government on keeping people of color out of certain communities. Which, as I just shared with you, uh, in fact, somebody says residential segregation is the linchpin of structural racism. And, and the reason why it's a shame if you move because a black person moves in your community or a Hispanic person moves in your community is because the property value somehow seems to follow uh, people who obviously have the wealth or, 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 the, or the, perhaps the race, um, but somehow the, the communities decline and it causes that, that you're, you're speaking into the life of other people when you do that. Uh, that's a book, The Color of Law, Richard, Richard Rothstein. I don't want to misdivide it by faith. We've said that. Um, I, I mentioned last year, last week, the color of compromise. Um, Michael Emerson. So My, Michael Emerson writes "Divided by Faith" with Christian Smith. Um, Emerson writes several things. I would say go find a, a, quite a bit of uh, go go find and look at Michael Emerson. He's a sociologist. Uh, uh, what he wrote. Uh, there's a there's a there's a book called um, Oh, um, from Rice University, formerly of Rice University. President of Garden, I'm, I'm trying to get the thoughts in my head. Um, he talks about this. This one's about evangelicalism, faith, faith in halls of power, faith in halls of power. Now, the reason why I bring that book up is because it talks about the the amazing opportunities and power that particularly uh, white evangelicals have in the nation. Now, it just says evangelicals, but we know that for the most part in this country, evangelicals are white, um, and 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 white evangelicals have power, even when they don't have authoritative power or positional power, we as the church and, and white evangelicals in particular have what we call convening power so that many of the initiatives that have taken place in this uh, country have been done because evangelicals have banded together and seen them done. I would say that's a book to read to understand your place in this so that when, when, when you hear me calling white evangelicals, you're not, you're not hearing me just say, hey, I'm calling on you because I want you to feel guilty. No, no. I'm calling on you because at this point in history, you actually have the best opportunity to shift the balance of, of what happens racially in this country. And at this point, at this point, if, if, the, if, the, if we're in the fourth quarter of the game, uh, it looks like we're losing when we look at white evangelicals. I just don't believe what's been said to me in the past that, hey, when people are 50 year old or, or older, you just gotta count them out. They're just racist. That's not true, is it? Blow your horn if that's true. <laughs> I didn't hear any blows. I, <laughs> so, that's not true. I just don't believe that. And Peter's, a, Peter's definitely, uh, somebody said it's true that whites are racist. <laughs> I hope not. <laughs> I, believe, I believe something about you. I believe same thing that happened to Peter. Same thing that happened to Dwight L. Moody can happen with us. And, and nobody's saying you're racist. What we're saying is the white Christian church quite often seems eerily silent on issues that matter to other people of color. Uh, and while over the years I need to make sure it's understood that, those, that things have gotten better, uh, right now we're still in a place where the church has to speak up, and I would say white evangelicals, you have an opportunity that many of us will never have, or, or at least right now we don't have, and if you use your power, we'll see this thing turn around.
Oh, that's a great place. Can we express our appreciation one more time, please? Our Savior Evangelical Free Church is a congregation located in Wheeling, Illinois. Our vision can be summed up in four words, building community, bringing Christ. To learn more about what these words mean, visit our website at osefc.org.